And my great fear is when I get up to the microphone is that I will mix up all the speeches and come out screaming about the CIA pissing in the nuclear plants in order to radiate the water, to poison the minds of the youth, in order to make them easy cannon fodder for the Pentagon's next war in Central America. <laughs> they chose to follow in the footsteps of George Bush with a night of media bashing. The first point to understand is if you think that the function of Channel 3 or the Burlington Free Press is to educate you about the world in which you're living, it's not. The function of private media is to make money for the people who own the media. It is a business. So the result is that we have freedom to write, freedom to speak, but we don't have freedom to have a mass audience. They know the media loves it. It didn't take me long to figure out in career of being a troublemaker that uh, if you wanted to get ideas out into the marketplace, if you wanted to make change in America, you had to very quickly recognize that entertainment had been elevated on the hierarchy of needs up there with love and nourishment and self-esteem, etc. Tom Grant, Channel 3 News, Burlington. What does that mean? And I want, now I want to go from the general to the personal. If you are a mayor or a serious public official, well, they got bored, they're leaving, all right. <laughs> if you are a serious public official, how do you deal with the complex issues that your city faces or your state faces, and you look at that camera and you say, oh, God, I got 30 seconds to do it. And then you understand why politicians become morons. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I'm Leslie the Third. Oh, and I'm Katie Halper, the first. Katie, you are co-hosting this very special episode of our show because Jack, uh, frankly, uh, refused to. He is on strike uh, for this episode. Wow. Um, a little backstory for people who uh, heard Jack and I on our special guest appearance on the West Wing thing. I said on that episode that we would never ever do an Aaron Sorkin uh show or movie on struggle session and Jack was so excited and happy <laughs> to hear that and then just maybe a week later I got a DM that made me have to you know readjust that promise that I made to Jack so he's on strike he's refusing to do the episode but Katie is subbing in I just want to thank you so much uh Katie for coming on and um really crossing a picket line I know I'm really, a scab so. I was gonna say it. it's my first time <laughs> to being be a scab a, <laughs> to be on this episode and the DM I got uh were from some great people at this uh amazing podcast called Impressions of America uh and they're the guests on our show because they wanted to talk about this movie The Trial of the Chicago 7 uh and today we have Toby and Vaughn with us thank you so much for joining us great to be here so they're like Thank the you. goons who who made this happen, who made you break yes, the, yes. the strike the goons. The, the, got it. For people who haven't heard your show, tell them about your uh, podcast. Well, the podcast is really um, about American history since maybe 1945. We're just trying to take people from the the, the post-war liberal consensus and just show them how it, it was shattered and how basically we have the the world that we have 
today. You seem to both have accents, uh, yet you're talking about um, America. Why are Vaughn? Why are you doing the podcast about America? Well, well, you're Vaughn's not an American. American. How? Yeah, oh, Vaughn is American. surprisingly. I am American. Um, I'm from Philly, but I live in London. I'm doing a PhD in London. Um, and you're and you're already converted. I already can tell from your <laughs> voice you're already converted. You're yeah, <laughs> assimilationist. Um, Mm-hmm. That transatlantic accent. Yeah. <laughs> the William Buckley. George Plimpton, a veritable George Plimpton. Well, I, I did um, a master's degree in uh, sort of American history, really associated with Theodore Roosevelt, because I saw it like, as the real beginning of the kinds of modern liberalism that we, we have today. But I never really got a chance to do any post-war stuff. So me and my friend Simon who's up in Scotland and was the, the original host of the Impressions of America, just came up with this idea of trying to explore all of these questions, all these very contemporary questions that I never got to explore. Is this like some kind of a cult, you know, cult, going native uh, cultural anthropology thing? <laughs> <laughs> and Vaughn, I, I was actually uh, looking at your bio and you study uh, film propaganda, more or less. Yes. Yes, I do. I study Christmas films from the early Cold War period for um, like anti-communist sentiments and ah. uh, pro-American propaganda. So I look at like It's a Wonderful Life, White Christmas, Amen. Miracle on 34th Street. It's it's a very fun project. Yeah, so are you going to be uh, doing a War on Christmas episode uh, this year where you cancel all our favorite holiday films? So we are doing a Christmas special, actually. Um, Sometime in December, just before Christmas, we'll be covering some um, of my own research with older Christmas films and then probably talking about some more contemporary ones because awful Christmas films are my absolute favorite genre. So I'm going to shoehorn it in. Katie, are there any Hanukkah films that are secretly anti-communist propaganda? I don't know. I don't think. Well, there certainly weren't any made back in those days. Um, although a lot of Jews wrote a lot of Christmas songs, by the way. I wrote a post. I did a something about that once, I think, some listicle. Uh, we can get into it another time. But no, I'm a Christmas tree Jew anyway. The only holiday I celebrate <laughs> is um, Passover. I really hope we're not doing It's a Wonderful Life, though. It's kind of saccharine. Most Christmas films are really How saccharine. dare you? No, it's, <laughs> we're definitely talking It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, Can we you. just do Die Hard, please? I mean, come on. <laughs> what else is there? Somebody There's, like um, my supervisor. Home Alone. Romans 2. All right, so let's get into our movie uh, today, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin. Mr. Uh, shut up, you goddamn woman, and listen to me uh, tell you what really matters. <laughs> he wrote and directed this movie. You know, people who listen to the show know who I, how I feel about Aaron Sorkin. I'm not a fan of him. I really despise the West Wing on a visceral level, as well as the newsroom. But I have to say, watching this movie, this Netflix uh, produced movie where he did not have the money to do 90 minutes of walk and talks and people just had to sit down and have believable conversations with one another. This one 
was more or less on just the surface level as a film pretty okay i did not necessarily have a bad time watching we'll talk about the politics and the actual history of this trial later but i just want to on the surface level what did everyone think about this movie i thought it was really fun you know i thought the the characters as you say they had genuine interactions uh people like tom hayden and people like um Jackson Baron Cohen's character, they seem to, to be written as they, the characters like Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden in the past. Um, there was a lot of good, uh, quite flashy scenes with uh, police uh, knocking people. Like It was very visceral at times. It was funny. It was entertaining. And, and I, yeah, I think it, they really captured, in, in terms of a lot of the, the motion stuff, they really captured what it was like. In, in the 60s to some extent I think yeah I thought it was I thought it was fun and but I also do think and we'll probably touch on this later that in Sorkin's sort of love of American institutions even in the courtroom where you have like a really difficult judge who's like clearly a racist Sorkin still he does a lot of the stuff that he did in a West Wing a lot of the stuff he did with a few good, good men and it does not escape that sort of stayed quite conservative liberalism that I, yeah, that he's known for. Yeah, I thought it I have to I thought it was very enjoyable. It was good. I wasn't, you know, I was engaged the whole time. I was moved. Um at some points, you know, I laughed a lot. I didn't cry. I, so I can't say I laughed, I cried. It was a roller coaster of emotions. I did get a little emotional at the end, which we'll talk about later, which I feel very guilty about. <laughs> um but yeah i thought it was great i thought sasha baron cohen was great i thought everyone was great um i uh yeah i thought the guy who played jerry rubin who is that he looks like he could be related to uh judah friedlander um Jeremy strong is that who it is yeah, yeah he, he, i thought I, I kept i kept parsing him in my mind as like jason manzoukas a yeah. mix of like yeah. jason yeah like that's what i thought Man- it was at first when i first saw him for like a second then i realized it obviously wasn't him yeah um, I really loved it. Um, I thought it was very enjoyable. I've in a past life studied a lot about 1968. So I thought it was a very interesting kind of ordering of events that happened in 1968. Yeah, that's one way to phrase it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think it was very compelling as a film text itself being an interpretation of a historical event. And also I was just like nerding out constantly about um, the set design. There were certain Mm. paintings at certain points in the film that I was like, oh my God, yes. It was just, it was so good. And the the editing between, like within the riot scenes, um, cutting between the actual footage, like historical footage um, and the film, it was seamless for me. And I just, I visually, I thought this was a spectacular film. I enjoyed it a lot. Sasha Baron Cohen was excellent as Abby Hoffman. It, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Jack is going to be extremely upset that we're praising a Sorkin <laughs> film so much when he hears about this. But yeah, I, I like, I really did on a, I really just felt like if he did stuff like this, like he would be much, a, a much better, like, uh, creator. Like it just is a lot more 
you know, like, I don't know. It just feels more like he's, he's doing less coke. That's basically what it feels like. He did a lot less cocaine. He couldn't get cocaine while he was filming this movie. And like, he just, it took, it takes its time. It's not trying to do a joke a minute, which he does in a lot of his shows. It's like fucking yakky sacks. Like he's doing jokes constantly and all his other stuff where he, you know, his jokes are still bad. I think for the most part in this one. And some, there's some of the, they recycle uh, some of the jokes. Like the one is enough uh yeah. thing that that's in like the west wing like exact oh, really? same scenario exact same everything but you know but besides the self you know plagiarization i on the whole like this was like one of the better things that he's done so i i gotta give him i gotta give it up to him on a craft level now on a political level uh i think is where the problem starts. So uh if so I know y'all are familiar with this history so can you kind of lay out what the real history is of this trial of the Chicago 8/7 why we're not sure how many we should say uh people what what number we should call it why it's one of the like most fucked up things in american <laughs> history that's happened but nobody ever really talks about it this i mean really this is my first time uh learning uh, about it so if uh if toby and vaughn if you could you know kind of break down that history essentially what the riots were that this film is about um happened during the democratic national convention in august of 1968 um and leading up to the convention the Democratic Party uh, really had a split base because the largest kind of the most vocal part of the electorate wanted an anti-Vietnam War candidate. Uh And the DNC was poising to put up Hubert Humphreys, who was a pro-war candidate or at least not de-escalation candidate. This sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. Doesn't uh, like, it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is funny because um, Humphrey actually internally, he was very, very deeply unsure about the, the war, like other mm-hmm. Democratic candidates, like um, RFK, for example. But because he really, really wanted the presidency, he just basically did whatever Lyndon Johnson said and became a pro-war yep. candidate. And it was very much against the electorate base of the Democratic Party. Um, RFK, Robert Kennedy, was doing very well um, and won many primaries up to that date. And then he was assassinated. And it left this kind of power vacuum within the Democratic Party, which is where the DNC felt comfortable just shoving Hubert Humphreys into that spot. So at the DNC, it was held in Chicago, August 68. They were anticipating massive protests um, from groups that are represented in the film. So the Students for a Democratic Society, um, the mobilization for the end of the Vietnam War, uh, Youth International Party, which are the yippies of Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Um, and then a lot of other kind of groups as well, including the Black Panthers and, and others. So thousands of people were planning to come to Chicago to protest the Democratic National Convention. And in response to that, Mayor Daley of Chicago um, and probed by the DNC, he ordered in the Illinois National Guard to protect the convention center. And they also brought in police from all around the state to be crowd control. 
So tensions were extremely high during the convention. I think it was, what, like four or five days of the convention. Um, and there were protests and rallies and just events constantly happening within Chicago at Lincoln Park, where these protests and rallies um, and riots break out in the film and in real life, which is about 10 miles away from the convention center, but very near to the Hilton Hotel, where all of the delegates were staying during the convention. Uh, protests are happening. They clash with police. There are the riots. Uh, this is a key point in the film. There's DNC protests now every time, and there's permits, and there's places where people are allowed to protest, and they had set up the big barricades and shut down the subway stations to co cordon off the area for all the VIPs in the green zone. But that wasn't the standard practice yet at the time, right? Yeah, I think. Uh, yes, I think they failed to give the protesters the permits, even though like Ramsey Clark, who's in this movie, has said that actually it was a real failure on the side of the Chicago administrators to give to not give them the permits because people who were clashing against the the war, who were, you know, vocal against the war, had a First Amendment right to be there. And he also one of the other failures was that the that the police force was already you know, was was set up to attack many of the protesters by mm -hmm. by by Mayor Daly. So this kind of illegal violence that was used by the police force was actually the center of of this story. But but Ramsey Clark is ousted once Hubert Humphrey is defeated by Richard Nixon, and then John Mitchell comes in as the Attorney General, and instead of and then Mayor Daly and John Mitchell sort of put a grand jury together, and instead of going after the police force, they try to find scapegoats from the protesters to pin an, an incitement to riot charge on them. And they pick the seven, at plus Bobby Seale, who had been talking mm -hmm. earlier, you know, in late August um, in Chicago, but he was not part of the riots at all. But he was pinned as the eighth member of the Chicago Seven. Mm -hmm. And then they yeah. had these givebacks, as Sasha Baron, as uh, Abby Hoffman is written. I mean, in this in this film, right? Calls them. Who are these two other people? I guess from SDS. Um, yeah. Right? So on the Lee Weiner and John Freunds. Yeah, they they were the kind of like softer two options that the jury right. could acquit and feel good about themselves right. for acquitting someone um, right. while also prosecuting the other ultimately five of the the seven right uh, after Bobby seal is separated from the case yeah and uh just so we are clear about you know the 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 real stakes and the casualties that happened at the um because of these riots like exactly how many targets were damaged? during uh the riots were there any starbucks who had their windows smashed at all while this happened um there was some property damage but surprisingly that wasn't the main kind of concern of most people yeah. viewing the riots yeah so yeah. like how many people were uh hurt by uh how many people did the cops hurt um i don't actually know the exact numbers but 
from what I remember, and this might just be me pulling this out of nowhere, uh, I believe there was about 8,000 people who had clashed with the police and had some form of injury after the fact. After four days and nights of violence. This is The Guardian, uh, okay. uh, by the way, that I'm quoting here. Uh, after four days and nights of violence, where did violence come from? Who knows? It's just violence. Okay. Um, 668 people had been arrested. 425 demonstrators were treated at temporary medical facilities. Okay. 200 were treated on the spot. 400 given first aid for tear gas exposure and 110 went to the hospital. A total of 192 police officers were injured. I gotta say, um, that's a Not pretty, enough. that's a, that's a nice r- ratio, I have yeah. to say. Uh, that's a nice ratio. Uh, uh, we can get those numbers up. Uh, <laughs> we can do it, guys. <laughs> we can get the, we yes. can, like, get, get the, get the, get the KD up. All right. People have said that, you know, uh, this year because of, uh, COVID and George Floyd that we've had mass protests and there have been a lot of clashes with police, but this is almost nothing compared to what happened in 68. In 67 and 68, you yeah. had riots all over America with massive amount of property yeah. damage and thousands of people hurt and a few people dying at many of these, these riots. This was, a, this was a kind of cultural upheaval that we don't really get anymore. Like the, hearing the number of like bombing, bombings that happened in like the 70s is just a staggering number that we have nothing to really compare to now and it's just there was so much radical energy uh that was of course crushed uh and repressed and ostensibly that's kind of what this movie is supposed to be about <laughs> the government cracked down on radical radicals and how they quashed the movement except for the fact that and this is my main beef with the film's politics that Aaron Sorkin is not really sure which side he's on for any of this movie. It's not mm-hmm. very clear. Like the, the main argument kind of that is happening in the film is like, are, is it okay to be like radical, radical as opposed to like, wow, this is an extremely belligerent fucked up prosecution that is a complete injustice and should never have happened like those all those those people have to like the radicals have to prove themselves that they are being persecuted Mm -hmm. by the end of the film like they don't like the the and most people would probably jump from the jump in from the perspective of the side of the you know people who are uh, the people who are being oppressed but this film starts from the perspective of the prosecutor of George <laughs> Joseph Gordon Levitt Levitt playing the real life prosecutor Schultz who and this is another problem with the film cuz it changes a lot of the history uh the actual prosecutor of this case is still alive in the film he's portrayed as being you know kind of straight down the road conservative straight laced about the law and he was resistant you know to trying this case but uh eventually he was convinced to do it in real life the the prosecutor says no he wasn't he had no problem with doing it at all well obviously i mean he took liberties right with the with apparently i didn't know that but that's kind of interesting that he had the prosecutor be much more sympathetic than he actually was you saw this as kind of a the moral upstanding guy who was disturbed when Bobby uh, Seal was 
bound and gagged mm. and chained. Although it's not, I mean, he was just, you could see through the acting that he kind of was viscerally disturbed. But of course, what he says to the judge is that there needs to be a mistrial for him, for Bobby Seal. Mm-hmm. The thing about that scene is that in the movie, that's like five minutes. Mm-hmm. In reality, he was bound for two and a half days. Yeah. Oh, my about God. In, yeah. In court. So that, that's and you know, insane. that completely changes like how that yeah. plays out and how right. you perceive. Because even watching that scene, you get the feeling like the judge feels bad about it. Like you get the feeling that the judge feels bad about what he did. I don't actually think that. I think he feels, I mean, I don't think that's for me, the feeling was, oh, he realizes this, you know, um, William Kunstler's character says, you made, the, you, yeah, you got, you got to do a retrial because, uh, grant him a mistrial, sorry, a mistrial, right? Yeah. Because um, cause you just made the black guy look sympathetic. So I think that the kind of urgency in, in the judge's eyes reflects like more of an, oh shit, I just gave. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I kind of. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of like a bit of both. Like, it was like, oh, I fucked up. And also, like, I've gone too far. Because they kind of portray him as kind of being, like, senile. And, like, really, they portray him as being senile. It was kind of a true portrayal because he wasn't, um, Ramsey Clark has said that he, this judge wasn't temperamentally suited for the kind of volatility that that this case was going to bring out. So he was like that. And he was, he was as old and as, Sort of a, a fossil right. who probably shouldn't have been there as he is being depicted by Frank uh, Langella. But yeah, you, Langella, you are, uh, yeah. who does a great job, by he the does, way. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Bobby Seale actually tried while he was bound and gagged to get out of the gag during the, the trial for, for, for ages. And it, and it sent a message out to people who were watching the trial of how much of an injustice that this was. But yeah, it was. Right. It's very different. And Bobby Seale was actually much more belligerent than he was in the film, you know, calling mm-hmm. him a fascist, a pig. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the film really, en- although it engages, it says, you know, well, clearly the, the judge is a racist or he's a- acting out of turn. It doesn't really engage that much with what really happened between them. And with the the Black Panthers, not just as a, a group of um, sort of anti-racist um, mm-hmm. sort of a civil rights group, but actually a, a, a group that promoted uh, violent resistance against the government and deep subversion. It, 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 Bobby Seale comes out as a much more clean-cut um, character that's easy to identify with from the perspective of sort of like normal suburban, even conservatives. Yeah, and I actually kind of think that's a lie I'll forgive, right? Like if yeah. you like making the Black Panthers look like maybe a little bit softer and yeah. gentler, like I'm actually kind of okay with that fictional aspect. Seal did actually get out of his bind at one wow. point while he was chained. And by kind of like removing that whole, that whole struggle that he was having, literally being bound and gagged in a struggle session, courtroom. if you will. <laughs> yeah. oh. Um, by kind of removing that, it showed that, like, the government in this courtroom was, like, very effective at silencing him. And I think that's a pretty Mm. shit message to send because the government never really succeeded in stifling the Black Panthers in the way that they kind of portrayed in this film. Um, And I think that's a kind of narrowly missed historical point 
Yeah, there there's a number to get to uh because even like I mean the Fred Hampton uh oh, stuff yeah. which, mm-hmm. which was yeah. which was weird because it was exaggerated cuz Fred yes. Hampton wasn't actually in the trial uh. uh like that um uh, or giving uh, Bobby Seal advice but it also like pulled back on the thing if you're going to put Fred Hampton in a movie isn't the main thing you want to put in the fact that the Chicago PD and the FBI conspired to kill him. Like, yes. don't you, like, would you not? Like, I understand maybe it was not known at the time definitive as definitively as we do now, but it was certainly suspected. And hey, your camera can go in anywhere. You can show the FBI agents planning to murder him if you want. Like, I didn't understand. Like, why would you leave that? You're, you're saying that he didn't. You're saying that they could have dramatic because because they they tell us that right. But you're saying like why didn't they dramatically represent that part? I mean, we and know so, he's executed, right? So yes, yes. They Can say I jump that, in yeah. there? Yeah. Oh yes, please. So this is a part of the reordering of events that's kind of problematic because um, Bobby Seal was bound and gagged on the 29th of October in real life. The 29th of October. And on November 6th, um, he was granted a mistrial. So he was separated from everything then. And then Fred Hampton was murdered in his home in the exact same way as as was depicted um, and discussed in December. Mm. So it didn't happen during the trial. Yeah. I think Sorkin just added it in post-production, that scene. The, the death of Fred Hampton, because oh. I think something had happened with Breonna Taylor, and, and Sorkin felt deeply that he oh, needed to yeah. add that into the into the movie. Ah, oh, that's yeah. interesting. That is interesting. That is really yeah. interesting. So, Leslie, your point is like, if you're going to mention that part, so like chronology aside, because now we know that it didn't happen that that way, right? Is your point like, if you're going to have that, you should have that be part of a scene? Yeah, you should have the part that everyone talks about, which is that he was murdered by the FBI and the Chicago PD, and it was an operation run by them. Like, why shove it in and just leave it out? The only person who says the cops killed him are actually... Bobby, that comes out of Bobby Seale's mouth, and yeah. even though he's generally portrayed sympathetically, uh, I think all the e- activists kind of are uh-huh. more or less. You can't believe everything that that they say. They're constantly, you know, proving wrong or to be boastful or to be lying. They, some of them lie at times. You, you're you're ne- the ship, the movie never fully is on side of the activists. So even so, Bobby Seale saying, "Oh, the pigs killed him," like that is still like kind of a question. Like if you watch this movie, you actually have to look it up because otherwise you just come away thinking, oh, that's just Bobby's, this radical guy's opinion. And these radicals, yeah, they seem pretty good, but sometimes they go too far. So maybe it didn't happen that way. Permission to treat the co-host as hostile. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I object. No, I I think that actually, I mean, I think what you're saying is true. I think I disagree with your a little bit uh, with your the overall question of the sympathy towards the radicals, towards the activists. But even even if we if we think that there's um, some ambiguity there, um, I think that th- I do actually think that you were supposed to 
to not question Bobby Seale's uh, rendition of it because you see him say that he was told and the point that he makes about being shot in the shoulder, which renders you unable to shoot a gun. And then he says, make sure you look that up in the report. I don't remember what he says, but make sure Mm -hmm. they talk about that. I, my sense for that from that was like, it is absolutely indisputable that it happened this way. But I guess my thing is like, you could have actually just shown it happen. Yes, like, you, right, like yeah. and, there, and, and it didn't seem like there was any reason not to. And, and just to uh, assist Katie, yeah. I would also say that I think continuously in the movie that the the side of the prosecution is, is shown to be morally pretty bad. I think um, the use of um, jury tampering as well on, on the side of the prosecution is one yeah. of the points that, that yeah. outlined this. There's a juror, juror number six, well, who goes in and the judge tells her that the right. Black Panthers have written a note to her family, but they they made up the, the note. Didn't they? It was only like a couple of bad apples. Yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt <laughs> right. had nothing to do with any of those nefarious tactics. Yeah. And he is just, was just as upset as uh-huh. we were when he saw them go down and he continued with the prosecution. Right. No, that's definitely true he was i mean it, to the extent to which he's either like he's the outlier or they're the outliers i think is is an interesting one but they definitely unnecessarily humanize part of the prosecution right especially since oh, we know absolutely. that he wasn't like that although i wonder if that makes him more persuasive or better propaganda to reach people i think Gordon Levitt comes off as a sort of like frank kappa type character he's young handsome he's a yeah. lawyer yeah. he's up yeah. and coming and he has a moral center even though he's playing for the, the home team here, I think so. Yeah, and he is a good father, cute with the kids, gives his kids the candy the mom won't let them have. <laughs> when you think about it, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I'm looking this up, he has, like, literally never been a bad guy yeah. in a movie, except for G.I. Joe, when he's covered entirely in makeup. Like, you can't, right. you cannot mm-hmm. possibly tell it's him. He's never been a villain, so even casting uh-huh. him like this you know boyish charming right. good-looking actor who's always playing you know the good guy is like is a choice is a is a choice yeah. from sorkin uh to yeah. have him be you know the prosecutor instead of one of the it actors. has a material effect on the narrative right. yeah. in, in many ways it's just like casting tom right. hanks in, in that role i mean what, what would you supposed to think about mm-hmm. the guy yes Right. And again, just the narrative aspect, you know, showing him feeling some kind of ambivalence when that's so funny, Leslie, that the guy was like, nope, I was fine with that. It's like a pretty big tell. Like and he was fine with it even after he saw the movie. Jesus like, so what does that say about the right. movie? Really? Yeah. <laughs> like, if if somebody's like looks at this uh, this portrayal and they say, actually, what I would change is that they would make me less ambivalent about right. everything that happens. So how bad can like the condemnation of the prosecution right. actually be? If the pros, if the prosecutor who is played by Joseph Gordon Levitt as like a, almost like an Atticus fucking finch, <laughs> right? And like he's saying, actually, no, I want, I do want to take credit for all yeah. that. A lot of people also said the judge was worse, um, more of a monster than, than he was portrayed to be in the film. And, yeah. you know, they, they omitted the best line from that trial, which is when Abby Hoffman says to Julius Hoffman, uh, you're Shonda for the Goyam, which uh, means basically you are a shame in front of non-Jews. <laughs> uh, 
Like mm-hmm. you're like blowing up our spot. Shonda is shame. <laughs> Goyim is non-Jews. So Shonda for the Goyim, that's what it means. Uh, it's like, you know, you're embarrassing us in front of the from the non-Jews, which it's there's a, a sim- whole- It's similar of like an Uncle Tom, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I think, mm-hmm. I think in that, uh, yeah, I do think it is. I wonder if there's a, there must be a Yiddish word for, for Uncle Tom. What is t- uh, uncle? I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll try to figure it out. But um, he, de- I mean, there was an, a very interesting like Jewish- Jew on Jew conflict in there in that courtroom um, because Julius Hoffman was a oh and that was really funny I don't know I see the thing that, that drives me crazy about historical films is I always want to know what exactly is is uh-huh. quoted and what isn't so mm-hmm. I, I think he did say father when he said we're not related yes, that's that real right real. that Which was is real. hilarious that was absolutely real. hilarious <laughs> but um you know, he, Julius Hoffman was like a, a German Jew. So those are the, fa- you know, German, not, he wasn't born in Germany. His, his art, you know, his ancestors were German Jews. They're the fancy Jews. And Abby Hoffman is from the like Eastern European stock. They're the not as fancy Jews. Um, and apparently I was reading an article. Apparently Hoffman made another activist who was on the stand take off his kippah, his yarmulke. Um, which is interesting because that's another kind of performative thing. Like you have to be, you know, respectability politics can't be too religious. Um, of course, I mean, oh, and then William Kunstler, of course, was Jewish. I mean, he and Abby Hoffman were Jews like I'm a Jew, which is, you know, secular and uh, culturally Jewish and, you know, didn't care about marrying Jews or non-Jews, that type. Also, though, I got to say one thing, which is that um, Kunstler, I don't know if you've ever heard his voice in real life, but he has a very distinct voice, which that actor did not uh, achieve at all. Although he was a good actor, but... Was that uh, was that lawyer as cool in real life? Kunstler or yeah. Wineglass? Uh, Kunstler. Um, I think so, but I think he's... It, it may, unless it changed, he was much more of a kind of... Um, Almost more Abby Hoffman esque in his performative nature, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know we could. I, he was I'm pretty sure he played. He was in um, uh, Law and Order, but yeah, he was. You know, he defended whether underground Attica prisoners. He defended um, MLK as well, and yeah, and AIM, the American Indian Movement, Black Panthers, RCP. Um, See. This is like why wasn't any of that in the movie? Like, like why? Like right. that was like that was like, and I, I actually feel like the the movie kind of like did not really try to tie this you know younger, more radical aspect of the movement as much as it could have to the yeah, yeah. ones that you know liberals already like, like the MLK. You know, like there wasn't. I mean, I mean there there's some clips of MLK, but they could have they could have done more to make it seem like a holistic thing. Like the only black people you see in this are Black Panthers, right? Like like it, it what right. there's no non Black Panther black people in there, so you just think of them as the Black Panthers as opposed to the civil rights movement. But then that to play large. devil's advocate. The SDS and the Yippies and the Black Panthers saw themselves as different from the the older liberal movements right. that had come come before. They they saw themselves, whereas the Black Panthers yeah. waging violent um, resistance against the the American government, which was the antithesis of Martin Luther King's nonviolent procedure. And I, and I guess the SDS and the Yippies as well. They 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 saw themselves as part of a counterculture that was very much against everything that the 
the older culture stand, stood for. They they were for radical authenticity, or almost like a, a Dionysian cult of uh, youth and nature, and the, a lot of these things were very very different from the liberalism that yeah. was before. And I think the people like Kunstler, people like um, Ramsey Clark, become uh, in many ways the, the the typical heroes of the Sorkin story, and they are much more in line with that kind of liberalism. But I do think that the film really fails to really engage with the ideas of the SDS, the ideas of the Yippies, and the ideas of the Black Panthers, because yes, that's not yes, really yes. Sorkin's politics at all. Yeah, yeah, right. this is the least political political film I've ever seen, it's- really, because it's really not about the actual politics and that's why i said like at least tie it to like mlk so at least you're tricking the libs into like liking the black panthers like oh it's all <laughs> right. you know, like they're they're like like lie i'm asking for some good right. propaganda. well which like, is some- why you appreciated the softening of bobby seal right yeah, yeah yeah exactly like if you're going to lie like lie in that mood that shifts the conversation a bit more to the left at least you know you know it's it's interesting though because he uh you know the most MLK like character in the um, in that cast of characters on the on the st- on the you know being tried was actually Dellinger, uh, who's white. Yeah. So important difference, but he was very committed to nonviolence as a tactic and discipline um, and moral cause because he was a conscientious objector, I guess, in World War II. Again, I don't. I assume yes, that is true because that's in the that's in the. I'm pretty sure that's true. I can look that up. But uh, who knows? With Sorkin taking so so many liberties, such liberties, and I don't know. Did he really punch a guard in the in the during the trial the way he did in the in the film? No. Do we know he did not. No. Okay, no, um, no, that guy was that guy was like a ultra pacifist. No, I know, but I, I mean, the point of that was that he lost his temper and yeah, yeah but like I don't that, know. No, yeah. that did not that happen. Did not happen. I, yeah, Abby Hoffman had a hilarious line. I don't think it was in the trial, but just to give you a sense of his Jewish sense of humor, apparently he said like some some people were th- there was a discussion about abortion. And he said he had a Jewish view of life, which is that it doesn't start until the the, the fetus has graduated from medical school. <laughs> Talking on the kind of politics of the film, the politics of the trial, um, the trial in real life was much more culturally relevant than the film kind of suggests. It The, the film really frames it as this is a political trial all 27 or 37 witnesses they called were police who were undercover. Um, whereas in reality, the there were witnesses like um, Timothy Leary and uh, Allen Ginsberg and yeah. all of these kind of like cultural movement people who spoke on behalf of the, the radicals um, and kind of explained the mindset of the, the new radicalism that they're they're defending um so i think that was definitely kind of a missed opportunity from sorkin to really like he really chose a side in framing it as the quote political trial as he does because that's like a recurring theme in it that they keep saying this um and tom hayden's character or yeah tom hayden says at one point the cultural revolution is getting in the way of the actual revolution and yeah. that's that's not explored enough, I think, because that's like the the kind of main disagreement that Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden have. Um, that 
Abby's much more about the culture and Tom wants to win elections so they can change laws. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I was sh- shocked when I actually, cause that is just, that yeah. is just West Wing talk. That's just, I do not believe yeah. anybody who could possibly be called a radical and be put on trial would ever like say that. I'm sorry. That just seems like completely absurd to me. I think the defense really had a two-pronged strategy. The strategy on one sense was try- was trying to make sure that the conspiracy point and the incitement to riot point were dismissed by the jurors. But on the other side, they, they really were waging a cultural battle against America and much of the mm-hmm. American life, like having Allen Ginsberg and Timothy Leary and Norman Mailer come to the stand, that was that was the real meat mm-hmm. in the heart of much of their defense. So on the prosecution side, you do actually have a very realistic um, view of what happened with people, um, with the police officers and, and people who failed to give the, the Festival of Light permits. But on the side of defense, it doesn't really come out. Like Allen Ginsberg said things like, you know, uh, politics has become theater in this country we're, we're attacking the lifestyle of this country it's intolerable the large va- violence um the, the 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 planet is dying the, the, all, you know our children are, are, are going to have a worse future than we're we're having because the planet is dying so this sort of deep left-wing politics that permeated much of the, the sds and, and the in the yippies doesn't come out at all in this movie and I think, but I also think mm-hmm. that there's an interesting thing about the Allen Ginsberg thing, because Allen Ginsberg said that. And then what the, the prosecution did is they, they, they tried to dismiss Ginsberg by bringing up some of his gay poetry. You know, poetry, he talked, you know, talked about uh, sleeping with men or saliva and, and other things that he was doing with, with men. And they try to use that to dismiss him. And it's like, that is, and the gay, the issue of um, trying to dismiss someone because of, on homophobia is something Sorkin could have explored. It isn't something that's particularly left-wing anymore. It's something that I think liberal audiences would enjoy and would absorb and would support. But Sorkin doesn't deal with that issue at all. And I think it shows how mm. deeply conservative Sorkin is. Yeah, let's jump to the ending. Which mm. I have to say, I, I is even though I on the whole enjoyed the movie, probably one of the most insulting things I've ever seen on film. Uh, it it did not happen this way. Um, we uh, for it's it, and it's actually strange for a movie that's about a trial. They actually skip the verdict, right? They skip. They don't yeah, show yeah. you the guilt, actual guilt. You see, like you don't see. I don't even think you see the closing arguments. It's like is like they end one day, and then the next time you see them, they've already been uh, found guilty of numerous charges, and you see uh, the sentencing and how the film like a real life movie ends is that uh the hayden character uh hayden um who is you know the the more liberal uh electoral focused um political radical who is uh who has been you know kind of trying to be the voice of reason but actually he it's his fault uh that the riot started because he said one 
word wrong. Even this, mm. that's not true. That's not, uh, reality. That's but, not true. Uh, yeah. I was wondering. Yeah. But that, that's what the trial hangs on. So he basically loses them the case. So he, and he, you know, is kind of presented as kind of being weak and not really down with the calls like the others up to this point. So he proves himself by standing up during the sentencing and instead of asking the judge who likes him right. among, uh, soul among all the defendants he only likes you know this you know really you know kennedy like guy he stands up and he reads off the names of all the uh soldiers who died uh, who who died since the trial started right. in vietnam u.s casualties <laughs> only u.s yeah ca- right casualty. yeah and it's, that's very point that's very pointed and specific like during this whole movie, you will not get the idea that anti-war activists cared, cared about, about Vietnamese. the v- Vietnamese yes. people at all. Like it's not, it's not anything that comes out of their mouth. So he reads the U.S. the names of the U.S. troops, and then people start standing up. And it's not just like that; these people are di- died. It's that these Americans died, and we, and mm-hmm. this trial is really about them and how we should respect them and the troops and even joseph gordon levitt the prosecutor stands up and everyone Ugh. applauds right. it's literally an and everyone stood up and applauded ending absolutely did not happen not right. an ending to a movie by the way that's not how a <laughs> trial ends that's not how a movie ends right. that's not how, how anything ends everyone stands up and applauds just he did not know how to finish the movie because he really didn't know like who the good guys or bad guys really were and so it just sort of stops when ever with this one of the laziest conceptions i mean for a scene i've ever i really i do think that it makes very clear who the good guys uh-huh. are and who the bad guys are yeah even if we want to like problematize that and say that he makes it look like you can be a prosecutor and be a good guy and we know that he wanted to show that by making the uh one of them feel conflicted and as you as we keep laughing at he wasn't feeling that way but and, st- and stand up for the troops yeah so what but uh- <laughs> i mean i was when did you did you know this when you were watching that it didn't happen that way or did you not know yes yeah, you knew it didn't happen that way, and and you. Leslie, I knew it did didn't you... happen because I just saw it. I'm like, there's no oh, way that funny. this actually happened. Right. There's no way because I thought if if it what I thought was maybe interest, it would have been an interesting tool. But it, yeah, it, it felt it ran on it rang on true, especially because of the uh, Vietnamese people not being part of the body count. Yeah. But um, I mean, it, it's a clever tactic when you're, or I think, like m- trying to appeal to this kind of problematic patriotism can be a good gateway drug to to bring people in who are not anti-war but that's kind of neither here nor there yeah because, yeah it's um, the gateway it's not the end of the movie right like like that's maybe where you start the right movie exactly yeah from, right but that's not where you end the movie I, I think it took it out of the n- narrative a little bit because i think that did happen because it's dellinger dellinger it didn't happen at the end of the trial yeah, no, is, yeah. halfway through and also they, 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 some of the people left in this rendition, right? So you have the yeah. bad guys leaving the courtroom. So like the head pro, like the attorney the general, head the head prosecutor leaves. leaves. He's like, why are you shame. standing? He's like, respect the fallen. That's like what the good prosecutor <laughs> says. And then some people leave the, the room, but everyone else is, yeah, is standing for them. And then a really weird narrative thing happens, right? So they, they freeze frame it, I believe. Um, and they, uh, yeah, they freeze frame it. Right. And with people's hands, uh, you know, fists raised and, 
and clapping to this. And then they, they read through, they have in, in text, they tell us about what happened to Bob B. Seal, what happened to Abby Hoffman, um, and what happened to, but, but I don't, who, they don't tell us what happened to Dellinger. No, uh, they do. It's Ruben and uh, Hayden. Yeah. And then, um, uh, Ruben Hayden and, and, and Hoffman, right? And then, yeah. and Seal. And then after the freeze frame, after they've put that text in, I'm just looking to see what how they do it. They then have more. Oh, and then William Conso, they tell us what happened to him. And then they have, and then it returns back to action. And then it ends. A bizarre ending. And I felt like as I was watching it, it was like, what are, where are you going with this? Because you can't like read out 5,000 names in a film, but they just kept reading them. And I was like, where is this going though? Um, And I was, I was very unsure about that. And I feel like, like it, it ended, there was a really strong ending with Abby Hoffman taking the stand and quoting Lincoln, Lincoln's inaugural address from 1861 saying it's an American right, an American revolutionary right to overturn their government when they grow weary of the constitutional right. rights afforded them. And he says very strongly, and I don't know if Abby Hoffman actually said this, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did. He says um, that if Lincoln had given that speech in, uh, in Lincoln Park last summer, he'd be put on trial like the rest of us. Right. And that it, was such yeah. a strong point to kind of let things simmer for a moment. But they just kind of launched into the the next trial dates. And or I think he has like a couple um ending points to say that Tom Hayden's a badass American hero or right. something. Yeah, it's I like, know that was so stupid. What? That's such a great point that you just made because like if Abby Bess Jordan Joseph Gordon Levitt on the stand and that's mm-hmm. kind of the end of the movie then they're saying oh wait even like the worst most annoying radical is still better than our handsome good-looking morally right. conflicted prosecutor that's a like putting yeah. your you know hand on the scale saying all right we're very clear about and not that movies have to do that like not that movies have to tell you who the good guy bad guys are but when you're a movie that's ostensibly about like politics and real life politics and your movie like dampens so much and doesn't really dive as much into the pravity of how th- that this trial was going on i don't know i just would rather something like dumb and simple and obvious at some point yeah. at some point take a stand you know yeah and i i think abby hoffman's character in those final kind of words is really really poignant there um and it took place at lincoln park right in chicago yeah so that's another irony right like very makes it that much more yeah. poignant. exactly yeah, yeah. It, it was a really strong point to kind of leave things on. And then you hand it over to like the good looking Eddie Redmayne Hayden, who stood for the judge when Bobby Seal was gagged. Right. And everybody hates him now because he's seen as this kind of conservative asshole who isn't really liberal or isn't really radical um, right. at all. And then he just and, redeems himself, right? And yeah, he's like, I'm sorry. Are you saying that if I am brief and respectful yeah, exactly. and show remorse, then I get easier treatment? And then reads these lists, like like these list of names, like he's the hero. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. We all hated you ten minutes ago. Yeah, like, yeah. Why, why do you get a redem- redemption arc? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it felt a little kind of contrived for me at that point. 
You know, he, by the way, Bob, do you know about Jerry um, Rubin's life after this? He became like a stockbroker. And uh, he created business, something called business networking salons and which had like parties Mm. at studio 54. Um, He became like a yuppie, not a yippie. I mean, it it, it tracks with a lot (laughs) of sort of radicals. In it's that a pipeline. period, you know, as as yeah. as Americans went through right, yeah. trying to change the world to changing yourself, and maybe that will change the world. People became much more narcissistic, and the the moment that is sixty eight sort of dies out with a lot of all these people. Yeah, he died. Then he died getting struck by a motorist trying to cross Wilshire Boulevard in front of his penthouse apartment. <sighs> kind of a sad, appropriate ending, though. Yeah, <laughs> this is very sad. I don't know how if it was appropriate. Kate. Well, it's appropriate to his becoming like this. This you know, sell out. Yeah, sell out. I don't wish death on him. Obviously, it's just a, an interesting metaphor. Yeah, oh, well, that's something I really liked in the film is the very visual, overstated metaphor that Abby Hoffman is kind of narrating through, um, between the inside of this bar where the fifties were happening and the outside yeah, of the bar yeah, where the sixties yeah. were happening. And he says right. that an unnecessary metaphor and uh, they crashed through the glass. I really liked right. that scene. I yeah, thought it too. was like very on the nose, but like forcing us to look at something that is very real and very important to remember when thinking about 1968 is that not everyone was necessarily living yeah. in the same. I mean, it, it's Nixon's right. silent majority, isn't it? Like Nixon won in 68. Then he won rapturously yeah, in seventy two. Exactly. Like most people were against the people, uh, Abby Hoffman and Jay Rubin. And I do think, like visually, as Vaughn has said, right. that, that um, Sorkin does this really, really well. He does it in the trial where you compare the prosecution mm-hmm. to the the defense, and you could see in the defense people like Abby Hoffman, Jay Rubin, they dress very differently. They stick out. They're individualists. They're, they're putting their legs up. Versus the prosecution who were, you know, buttoned down, you know, sort of Frank Kappa types. And there is that tension in the movie visually between those characters. But I don't think that the real ideas of the more idiosyncratic characters like Hoffman and Rubin are really put to the fore. Mm-hmm. I think Hoffman and Rubin, in many ways, are they're, they're sort of caricatures. They're funny. They they wear robes and 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 um, police yeah. garbs in right. in oh, the. It's really funny. Yeah, and they're yeah, like R two D two and C three PO instead of being intellectuals who have so real critique of American life. I would disagree with that because I think they portray Abby Hoffman that way for a lot of the film. But somebody says early on he's smarter than you think he is. Yeah, it's and, um, Weinglass yeah, we, says that to Hayden, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Are that, but they play that role for a chunk of that movie. But they also did in real life. Oh yeah, they actually wore the judges' robes to right. court, and they like a lot of the the jokes that were in the film were quotes from Abby Hoffman. So they, I think they played that pretty well. And yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen did a really good He's job of showing though, yeah. that kind of dichotomy that you can be intellectual, you can be intelligent, and still be radical and a yippie and like right. live freely you don't have to always put it on as a costume like tom hayden does dressing the part literally getting a haircut for the judge right and right. abby hoffman's I, like you can do both you can be smart and a badass yeah but they, right. they were countercultural pranksters right d- during the oh. during during the movie but yeah, you know, like, yeah. the only times that, that abby hoffman's ideas really come 
out are when he's talking about, you know, cultural uh, revolution very briefly with Tom Hayden. And then at the end, when he talks about Lincoln, but in the actual trial, you have people like Randy Davis actually engaging with the American revolution and trying to compare the American revolution to the revolution that they're opposing in 68. And you have Allen Ginsberg, is you have Allen Ginsberg doing did. that, you have Timothy Leary doing that, you have other activists actually doing that. Right. But in Sorkin's version, you have someone like Jerry Rubin, who's like, I mean, uh, unlike Abby Hoffman, whose who's whole shtick is just to be someone who's funny. He has this um, funny side story with the FBI agent. But he doesn't really come across as a person. You don't really have that context to see them more fully. Like if this was a biopic about Abby Hoffman, yeah. all those same jokes would be in there. But mm-hmm. we also get so much more of this. Instead, he's constantly contrasted uh, against, you know, the more proper, right. you know, radical and kind of gets pushed, you know, in, into this, you know, role of like a kind of com- com- comedic relief role, even mm-hmm. though it could be so much more. So it's like, it's not that the, those scenes shouldn't be in there. It's just like the context of it really doesn't present a good, like a full character. Uh, they could. 30 seconds. I, I actually think that they that they kind of both politically and dramatically want to show the spectrum, the political spectrum. And I do think that something that this is, I think, a good parallel of what Abby Hoffman did in real life, which is that he brought you in through humor and fun and funniness and pranks. But then there really is a serious message. So I actually mm-hmm. thought that that was a well I thought that was represented well. And then we get that insight into it where he basically says, like, I'm this brings us press and the cameras. Um so I, I do think that Jerry and, and you also Jerry Rubin's invested with a lot of moral authority for trying to save this woman as she's about to be yeah. raped. So I, I think that it's very it's very sympathetic towards them. But then it makes this corny like what can't like can we all on the left just get along? And then they do just get along because he and yeah. Tom Hayden resolve their differences and he gives him props in court and then Tom Hayden saves the day. So but, I think that I is, think you know. But think actually really believes that yeah. Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman interaction where he says, you know, in for 50 years, people are going to think that the left is right. like you instead of being like a serious movement for equality and and poverty and, and things like that. And I mm. think that Sorkin believes that's been borne out by the electoral defeats in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and that he does not, because by not really engaging with Abby Hoffman's ideas, I mean, the thing about it is, like, Abby Hoffman was a prankster, that you had people like the Mary Pranksters and and, um, people that Tom Wolfe followed around, but they were all also intellectuals, and and for me, it just doesn't come out enough. All right, so that was the trial of the Chicago 7. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Toby, Vaughn, where can people find you and hear your show? Um, so we're uh, on Twitter, at USA Impressions, and we also have a website, impressionsofamerica.com, um, where you can find all of our latest shows and some uh, kind of articles that we write, some posters we've done. Uh, we're on Spotify, Apple. Uh, or iTunes and Toby, anything else? Yeah, I mean that's 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 basically it. I mean we have a lot of interesting guests. Um, Matt that's Matt Chrisman, the the artist from the fan loathing, uh, Ralph Steadman, mm-hmm. um, journalists and um, intellectuals and and basically people from this community, people like Trash Futures, 
um, other podcasts like QAnon Anonymous. You know, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, uh, Katie, my co-hostess with the mostest. Where can people find you on your uh, other shows? So you can find me on uh, iTunes and Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper show. You can also find me. I started doing a live stream show, which Leslie has graced with his presence, which is on youtube.com slash the Katie Halper show. And then on Twitter at Katie Halps, that's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And I'm also the co-host of Useful Idiots with Matt Taibbi, Rolling Stone right. podcast. Folks, that was Struggle Session. Have a good one. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.